Hello everyone, my name is Sachin Prithi and you're listening to Just Like Me, a podcast where six straight brown dudes attempt to unpack trending topics and issues in the world around us. Now are we qualified to talk about these subjects? Debatable, but will we do so in a funny and engaging enough way that it won't matter? Here's hoping. Now let's hear from all the other amazing hosts we have on this podcast. What's up guys, my name's Srinath. Hey everyone, I'm Alex. Hi guys, I'm Avnish. Hey y'all, I'm Ayush. What's up? It's your boy, Gupta. And now it's time for the questions to be asked in today's episode of our podcast. So today's a very special episode as we have a uh, guest today that is actually not a straight dude. Because she is a straight woman. <laughs> so uh, here to introduce some uh, a new perspective on what we hope to do here at uh, Just Like Me. And here to also add a little bit more estrogen to our conversation. Please welcome to our good friend. Why? Why? <laughs> what is wrong with you? I, think, I don't think they even caught the name. You want to do that part again, Mr. Estrogen? <laughs> Uh, what the hell? Our good friend, uh, Sahidi. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Sahiti, Sahidi, Sahi, whatever. I have like a hundred different names, but most of these guys call me Sahi because um, they're actually all my high school homies. Um, and they've very sweetly invited me to talk about healthcare as if I know anything, but we'll see. Um, so essentially my background on this is just that I, um, was a physiology undergrad and I am currently pre-med in the gruesome app cycle process. So I have a, um, hopefully prospective physician perspective as well as obviously like a patient perspective and stuff. Um, but yeah, I'm just an old high school buddy rekindling with these guys over the internet. And I believe we had some rapid fire questions for you to kind of get the podcast started before we get into the meat of the um, healthcare in America topic that we have for today. Uh, Thomas, did you want to kick it off? All right, Sahidi, Sahidi, let's just let's just let's just cut this quick. Um, yeah, sure. ca- candy corn, yay or nay? Yay! <laughs> yeah, woman. What a you can lead now. Strong woman. More, if you want me to go ahead. All right, yeah, yeah, yeah go. Alrighty. Uh, what's the best thing that happened to you to this? Oh, sorry. What's the best thing that happened to you this month? Ooh, best thing that happened. Quickly, Sonny, um, it's rapid fire. Dude, there's not just not that many great things happening. Okay. Um, Fuck. Wow. <laughs> work is going well. Oh my god, I'm so lame. It's fine. <laughs> oh, um, for those of you, you want to tell people what you do for work, Sahi? Say that again. You want to tell people what you do for your work? So they have- oh, yes. Okay, so I have this theory that me and Preeti are going to end up at the same med school because we've been weirdly syncing up during our gap year. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we're both ABA therapists. So essentially what we do is we work with kiddos with um, autism and sometimes co-occurring um, developmental disorders like ADHD or um, Down syndrome. So we basically just do one-on-one therapy for a couple sessions or for sessions every day. Um, and just work with them through any behavioral or developmental issues. And Zahi, you have your ABA test on Monday, right? Yeah, man. <laughs> Wish me great. luck. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, Sam. Okay. Uh, any other questions we had for Zahi? Before you get to... I'll ask like four more. Okay. <laughs> I got a couple too. Okay. All right, okay, fine. I'll ask three more, two more. What is your favorite movie? 
Ooh, wait, why am I actually being so lame? I should prepare for this. One <laughs> um, is you're not supposed to. Oh, okay. Well, um, recently been back on the Marvel hype, so Iron Man series. Good. Okay. Uh, favorite holiday. Oh, well, I guess we just had Diwali, so happy Diwali. <laughs> <laughs> we like this inspired stuff, man. That's what we like here with our, <laughs> with our six straight brown dudes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Trina, you're gonna go ahead and ask your question. Okay, out of all the 50 states, what what is your least favorite? Oh, and why is it Florida? Yeah. Why is it Florida? <laughs> Georgia, man, get your shit together. What are you fucking recounting? <laughs> They're our last hope, though. <laughs> oh yeah, you're right. You're right. We love you, Georgia. The Democratic. They have a Democratic um mayor, or like no. Governor, Governor, state. Governor, yes. Are you sure? Okay. Governor? <laughs> <laughs> Georgia is a state, Sadie. Fully known for their <laughs> geographical knowledge. Ah, uh, yes, so you're kind of. Sadie, is Seattle a state, a city, a territory? What are you thinking? I'm thinking it is a city in the state of Washington. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, she Seattle. Is- Seattle is a magical place. I think she's. Way. We should trust her. She's just, no, 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 no. She has background in in medicine, not geography. So I don't know. She's really pretty me. smart, dude. Virk did hate me freshman year, so that's probably why my geography skills are garbage. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um. Does anyone have any other questions they wanted to ask Tahi, or should we go to the topic on hand? Oh, I was I was wondering if Sahidi C- could mm. introduce to us what we'd be talking about from her perspective. Uh, I was actually, um, before Sahi goes into stuff that she wanted to talk about, I wanted to have a really quick uh, intro into healthcare um, question for everyone. So I'll obviously start with Sahi. But um, when I say the word healthcare in America, I wanted to ask you and everyone on this podcast who kind of has an opinion and wants to pitch in, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? It could be either a personal experience. It could be either um, like a problem based on like academic research that you've done. It can be like a scene from a movie that you remember that it can be both like a funny situation or a problem. If I say the word healthcare in America, I wanted to get a general uh, starting line before we get into nitty gritty. So uh, Sahi, I'll start with you. I said the word healthcare in America, what comes to your mind? Mm, Okay, not to set like a super somber tone, but um, I definitely think like business, right? Like when I think healthcare, I think healthcare industry. And um, I was recently reading this book called Slow Medicine um, by Dr. Victoria Sweet. She has been working in the San Francisco area for many years now. Um, And she kind of talks about like this transition from medicine to healthcare and how there was this industrialization, this more business-like mentality between providers and consumers, providers being physicians and consumers being patients and just creating that transactional relationship. So I kind of don't really like the ring or the like, I guess, a connotation of healthcare, but um, I'm kind of someone that wants to go back to the idea of medicine, if that makes sense. Yeah, um, I agree. The thing about, I one distinction about between healthcare and medicine is that healthcare includes what, nursing, behavioral therapy, uh, physical therapy, whereas medicine uh, is, I think people might just do when you're talking about doctors, but mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, medicine is uh, bigger than just, you know, doctors, like what nurses do, what therapists do, whatever, I mean, treatment through medicine. So I get, I understand your uh, idea where the connotation for healthcare comes from. And for those who are listening, I think it's an important distinction to uh, keep in mind. 
Um, hey, Prithi, under your definition, where would pharmaceuticals fall in the span of like healthcare and medicine? I think that's actually a really good question. I think pharmaceuticals would be one of those things that is separate from medicine and more under the healthcare umbrella. Um, okay. Just because uh, the training is different and the approach towards solving um, provide, providing care is also uh, different. Uh, in my opinion, the fact that it's uh, less, very less so personalized and more uh, science-based and uh, uh, principle-based. So, um, yeah, I think that there's an important distinction there. That's actually a really good question, Nish. Um, yeah, I, I was I was going to say just because um, it, it does eat up a large chunk of all healthcare and medicine costs in the country. Um, I, I had studied this like before we you know started this podcast. I'm looking at it right now. It's saying it eats up to 20% of the costs of healthcare. Yeah in the country almost and, as much as money goes towards physicians and nurses and other practitioners yeah and i think when we talk about like the business or like the private corporatization of uh, healthcare, i think pharmaceutical industry is a major component or proponent for that because of what they're doing and how they're uh in, in cahoots with insurance industries to some extent because the fact that they control the price for like insulin is not something that the healthcare providers itself are able to control it's the pharmaceutical companies it's the insurance companies and that's one of the things that uh i think sahi was referencing to although she can uh kind of add in herself if you want um sorry sorry go ahead um sorry so what were you saying um no i was just gonna follow up quickly to what pruthi said and like just add on that like although like i did make the distinction about like the whole business aspect i do agree with him that Healthcare is more, um, I guess, encompassing of a term in terms of the other types of providers that we have. Yeah, definitely. Um, Anish, did you want to finish with that? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, so I was going to try to directly answer your question. Um, so in the very short time that I did work in the healthcare industry, um, I came to understand uh, healthcare and medicine as an art. And I thought that that was incredibly wrong because I think that Healthcare shouldn't be up to creativity. It should definitely be up to uh, heavy standardization. Wait, in- as in, where was it? I'm confused. How did you see it as an art? Well, the variation in the healthcare that can be administered at the lower ends of like a uh, healthcare quality and the higher ends of healthcare quality is like pretty insane. So, a stat that my boss used to come to me with is. Um, so if you're if you're diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, um, cystic fibrosis, uh, tongue twister for me. Um, if you go to a certain doctor in Minnesota, your life expectancy goes up 30 years just if you're treated by this guy, compared to compared to other places in the country that treat cystic fibrosis. Wow. I'm assuming this place in Minnesota is that Mayo Clinic. I'm not sure if you have the name of the area on hand. But... I don't have the name of the place. I did find the study and I can share with you if you'd like. No, I mean, I'm assuming because Mayo Clinic is also a, a very famous, very prestigious hospital in the country. Yeah. So it might not be necessarily just one physician, but it has to do with the resources and the community that the physician is providing with. And also Mayo Clinic recruits or like has the best physician because it's such a very highly ranked medical school, very highly ranked institution. So, uh, you know, uh, Prithi, I'm actually looking right now and it looks like it might be Twin Cities. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I wanted, yeah, okay, wow, that's actually really interesting, but, um, but, but anyways, like, going back to my original point, um, 
uh, in that very short time that I did work in healthcare, and I did not work on the medicine side in any way. I worked on hospital process automa automation. Um, it just seems that uh, there's a lot of variation that is left up to hospital administrators and uh, practitioners that should probably be standardized instead. And that's just because in doing so, you'd likely bring down the cost of healthcare itself. And the quality of care, no matter where you went in the country, would be the exact same, hopefully. Yeah. Um, I have some uh, input I want to give on that, um, but I think I'm going to bring it up later in the podcast, especially as we're going to talk about race and gender and how that relates with medicine. So I think that's a more uh, bigger reason for why there is such discrepancies across the country for particular care. Um so uh, for now, I'm going to actually just pitch the original question to about what does healthcare in America mean to you, to Alex or Srinath or Ayush? Alex, the hands raised. I'll start with you. Um, for me, it's more of a story in that. So I, ha, hi, everyone. Uh, around two years ago, I got into a bike accident where um, it was kind of like a hit and run scenario where a car came and uh, basically, long story short, I like crashed into a car, slid down a hill on my face, and it was very bad. Broken nose, lacerations across my face, whatever. And um, literally walking back, like getting back to my apartment so I could go to the emergency room, I called my parents to tell them. And the first thing I said was I was sorry to my dad um, because I knew that we wouldn't find the person who hit me. And so I knew that we would have to pay for it. And so literally the first thing I said to my dad was, I'm sorry that we have to pay for it. And he was like upset after that that was my first thought. But honestly, that was always like what healthcare was to me. It's like such a thought process in this country. Like if you get hurt, like people have to question whether they need to go to the hospital, whether it's worth it, whether the cost is worth paying to treat something. So I'm I'm kind of ashamed that when something so drastic, so injurious to my own health happened, my first thought wasn't processing if I was okay, wasn't processing if I could walk. It was, how the hell are we going to pay for this? Um, and I know I'm not alone in that. So I think whenever people ask, what are your thoughts on healthcare? Just the fact that that's where my brain went first is always my reaction. Yeah. And that's very important and i'm glad you brought that up because that is like a question that people generally ask when they get hurt and like uh, i know that was the first thing you asked but there's all there's people and families who are in situations uh you know not as well off as any of us on this podcast they're in much more dire uh, situations and while your dad was able to calm you down it's like yeah no worries we'll be able to take care of it there are families around the country who definitely are worried that they can't take it. They're generally worried that if they go to this healthcare thing, they will spend the rest of their money kind of paying off the bills. So that is a question that is a fear that is definitely prevalent in America, I would say. And it's something that uh, I think has people like, uh, I think Bernie Sanders and other people have been trying to address, although it's been kind of criticized as more of a socialized, uh, uh, socialist aspect of uh, providing medicine or providing care. Uh, thank you for sharing that, Thomas. I know that was really kind of personal. Um, anybody else wanted to add anything, or did we want to go uh, on to the next topic? I'm not going to force you. I had. Uh, you're not go for it. Yeah, I had two stories. Something well, kind of related. It's not personal. So the first one is 
uh, so the story that was mentioned in an episode of uh, Last Week Tonight by John Oliver, and it's a story told by Katie Porter. She's a professor at UCI, my alma mater. I think I used that right. And a congresswoman. So during her congressional run, she actually had her, I think, appendix burst. So she had to go to the hospital. And one of her first thoughts, you know, this is someone who, you know, is doing pretty well off as a professor and, you know, has pretty good health care as a professor and resources to handle that kind of situation. Her first thought was, uh, don't. Well, she immediately told someone, don't call an ambulance. Just drive me to the nearest hospital. And so, like, that's because ambulances themselves, just getting to healthcare is expensive. And then her second thought was, don't take me, don't take me to the nearest hospital. Take me to the nearest in-network hospital where so that her insurance can actually cover her and she doesn't have to pay a bunch of money. And so even going there, she didn't get the right doctor who was also part of in her insurance. And she still ended up paying an obscene amount of money. And for someone with that much resources and that much, I guess, privilege to have access to healthcare, still not being able to get affordable healthcare, that just really showed how much the current system sucks. And that brings me to my second point. And back to the original question, what do I think of when I think of healthcare in America is pretty much just Bernie Sanders, because he, one thing that he brings up a lot and I guess made more well known that you know a lot of people are talking about about now is medicare for all and from his reasoning it goes back to just the fact that healthcare for everyone in the united states as just like i guess an objective statement shouldn't be controversial now, i'm a very idealistic person and so like i believe everyone should have access to healthcare and it shouldn't it shouldn't be hard for everyone to get healthcare and so like the fact that that statement itself is controversial and it's still not in our country. Yeah. It just, it's frustrating, I guess. Yeah. And that's what I think of every time I think of healthcare in America and it just, it's just sucks. Yeah. And, um, I, when I, I agree with you in that, I think that everyone healthcare is the right that everyone should be able to have access to. It's not, it shouldn't be a privilege. It shouldn't be something that should be based on wealth or uh, any other stuff like uh, something like that. Yeah. And when I think of people like, how can you be against, uh, um, you know, have healthcare for all? How can you be against something something that be so basic of a right? Yeah. Like, I I mean, it reminds me of the quote or like the thing that Alex said in his uh, in our Black Lives Matter podcast is like, no matter what topic it is you're going to find people who disagree with you. And that's, like I say, like you said, that's honestly so frustrating and it's honestly very difficult for our country or us to navigate through considering that there'll be dissent, no matter even how basic a decision it may be. Um, are you, you said you wanted something to share? Oh yeah. I mean, I not sure how, I guess the first thing I think of when I think of healthcare is my last visit to the doctors. So just to, like, give you guys context and give everyone context, I have this, like, weird little, I still actually have it, but, like, this weird little bump in the side of my cheek, and, you know, I was pretty scared because my, you know, it was like, oh, shit, like, my, I guess my mind went straight to worst-case scenario because my grandma had mouth cancer, and then when I show up to the doctors after, like, and it was really, for, for some reason at this point, I guess COVID's probably a case, like, I mean, COVID's probably a factor in this, too. 
Like it was really hard to get an appointment at a specific yeah. time for me to go in. And then when I finally went in, my doctor like looked at me and she was like touching. It's like, ah, oh, geez, I really don't know what this could be at all. Like, <laughs> oh shit. She, she yeah, no. She, and she, was, like, and she was like chuckling too. And I'm just like, I'm not laughing. <laughs> like, <laughs> it is very concerning how you can't even come up with a theory. <laughs> and I was just like, damn, dude, this could really be anything. But any, I mean, it, it ended up, it was fine because she was like, okay, now I need you to go to Oakland in three weeks to get your ultrasound done. And I was just like, dude, like, why <laughs> does it have to be so drawn out? And I was just like, why aren't the resources available in every hospital? Like, I understand maybe... Like, there's probably a part of hospital administration I don't understand, but I definitely do think of, like, lack of resource as a thing for healthcare. Yeah, and... I'm oh, sorry, did you finish your... Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that is definitely a very prominent issue in the healthcare industry. It's about, like, how doctors just keep on pawning patients off from one doctor to another, you know, specialist to specialist. And at the end of the day, there's many patients who just get lost in the red tape, get lost in the healthcare system, and don't end up with the care that they need, the care that they want for and that is something that is frustrating uh part of it has to do with kind of like uh, fear of malpractice part of it has to do with just healthcare resources and insurances uh the amount of like you said resources available in the area and um part of it does have to do with training you know like uh primary care physicians like family medicine physicians aren't they're taught to be like be good in uh testing like a a variety of different things rather than going into depth on like a couple things that's one of the things behind this as well so it's not Mm -hmm. only like the healthcare industry fault like has something to do with the medical education system itself but uh it is definitely a concern that a lot of people in america share Ayush. so i can understand that uh go ahead Srinath. i mean gupta yeah so when it comes to um like resources and resource allocation for these uh hospitals as well i think that um, the privatized uh, healthcare system has kind of worked in terms of providing um, a lot of <clears throat> equipment and a lot more resources to certain hospitals. For example, if you look at the Kaiser system, they distribute the resources pretty well throughout the whole, um, like all the hospitals in California that they have, as well as like around the country. Um, so I think that when it comes to Bernie Sanders and having socialized Medicare, I think there's like a middle path to it where you have some aspects of being able to provide um, like government resources and government allocation funds for uh, hospitals which have low funding, but then also have um, some form of privatization so that you still have that uh, superior management because you, we all know that when the government comes in anything then stuff like goes to shit really quickly so yeah that's what like i just want to get off my chest too for sure um sahi and amnesia let see your hands raised sahi go first please Okay, so I just wanted to circle a little bit back to the terms Medicare and Medicaid because I, I realize we'll probably be using them a lot today. Um, but I just wanted to like share, I'm sure you guys probably already know, but Medicare is actually more geared towards um, elderly persons, so 65 plus, whereas Medicaid is uh, a state and federally funded program. So the former Medicare is uh, federally funded completely. Medicaid is state and federally funded. And that's why from Medicaid, we derive Medi-Cal, which is the California version of 
Medicaid. And that is mostly for a lower income bracket, as well for women and persons with disabilities. So just wanted to make sure we're all on the same page in terms of using our terms. Yeah, that's why I've been trying to say healthcare because that's just the general giving people care for their health. <laughs> yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know the differentiation, but thanks for yeah, thanks for Yeah, listening. but thank you. There's there's too many. <laughs> no facts. <laughs> and then there's going to be Biden care, so like Oh jeez. <laughs> um Amnish, go ahead. Uh, so I want to circle back to a couple of points here. Uh, first with Srinath talking about the Affordable Care Act. Um, Did I talk about that? Sorry, not the Affordable Care Act. Uh, uh, M- M4A. You, you talked about M4A. Medicare, Medicare. Yes. Yeah, you talked about M4A. Uh, uh, so, okay. There's, there's a lot that anybody could say about this, but the first is I think that uh, most people, if you're not a sociopath, genuinely believe that everybody should have the right to health care. Okay. Well, the, I mean, my point is that half our country are apparently sociopaths. If they okay, sociopaths. Okay. It's, it's not. It's I'm 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 going for it based on his point. Like, give me give me give me a second. Okay. okay. I'll, I'll, you'll have a chance to respond. Just a second. Okay. Yeah. Um, what did I say? Okay. So we know we know generally speaking that our government is like only really able to make like within their wheelhouse of skills they're only able to make incremental changes to things okay so like a little bit of history uh here is that uh the age the the age at which you are able to you know receive medicare benefits is at 65 years old why is that um it's because in the 1800s in germany uh they had decided that they wanted to be able to provide end-of-life benefits for people and so they computed the percentage of people above how, like at, at what age uh, are three percent of elderly still alive uh, in Germany in the 1800s? And they came up with the age of 70, and then that got negotiated down, and it turned to 65 years old. Okay, and then when when these uh, benefits were enacted by uh, Roosevelt, Roosevelt created Social Security, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, he he essentially had modeled modeled his plan after the benefits that had preceded him. So. The benefits like aren't set up very well to expand to a whole lot of people, right? They, they were meant to they were meant to expand to like basically thirty percent of your population, um, and you know the government could go ahead and take on the healthcare like the the, the massive shifting healthcare problem of all Americans, but given given I think a lot of the problems that do face uh you know insurance and hot like general healthcare organizations um and the shift that they're trying to make there and the skills that the government have and i'm going to expand on what i mean by this um i don't see how we can go from the system that we have right now to a system where we provide healthcare for all um i'll i'll like follow up with what i mean why why i say that um and furthermore i think that we can improve vastly this the, the quality of healthcare just by expanding uh, Affordable Care Act to cover not only, you know, the bottom, say, I, I don't know actually what percentage of Americans it covers. I'm pretty sure it's the bottom third of the country in terms of uh, socioeconomic status. Uh, but if we covered two thirds of the country, that would be already a game changer. Uh, so wait, let me, let me get into why I'm saying that we can't go from what we have right now to M4A. 
I think so I'll, I'll, I'll use just one example. Okay. So right now, um, a big push in healthcare is to digitize all records in some certain way so that they can be easily transferred between different healthcare organizations. Okay. So, um, Sahidi and Pruthi can probably speak to this, but right now, if you want to get the patient data of somebody who's been referred to a larger hospital that is uh, more famous, say that like, say somebody gets sent to Stanford, right? Which is like really close to us, right? Most people aren't provided in care by Stanford. So they'll get their history from whatever uh, small hospital or clinic is providing the healthcare to that person. That history often is recorded by paper, okay? And it gets faxed in order for you to get patient data, okay? You can further confound this problem with the fact that like um, moving to these digital systems is expensive because, well, we live in a capitalist society and there's not exactly a way to limit the amount of money people are allowed to make on such things. Um, but now, now, we're, now we're in an even greater push like um, just to digitize our healthcare records. And it's been a tough problem to solve even in organizations that have been touted uh, as industry leaders in terms of like, revolution, like revolutionizing with technology. So an example is Kaiser Permanente, where I worked for that very short time as an intern. Um, they have spent the last 16 years or so just trying to move their currently digital healthcare records that have been digitized since the 70s over to one new system that uses more modern technologies. Uh, they call it Azure Data Platform. Uh, like that, that's, the, that's what they call it internally. They don't use Epic at Kaiser? Actually, this is really funny. They helped create Epic, right? Everybody wants to get off of Epic because Epic's backend uh, all stores healthcare data in slightly different formats. Okay. So imagine if you have to pool billions of healthcare records and they all come in different formats. That is that is the scale of the problem. Sorry, what? I was going to say that's as frustrating as for patients and healthcare providers, um, insurance companies, it's also very frustrating for physicians because they're just starting to learn how to use Epic and uh, those frustrations can often lead to worse patient care. I just wanted to add on quickly. Okay, well, th that may be a true, Pruthi, but you should also know that Epic, Epic charges a lot of money for their systems. Oh, definitely. Like, yeah, it is, it, is a, it is contributing to increasing healthcare costs. Well, so... There's just this problem where over 16 years, they've tried to standardize the way in which healthcare records are stored into one system, right? The government was barely able to hack together like Affordable Care Act after putting $10 billion just into the web backend for Obamacare. It's like, I don't, I don't see how if we were to pass M4A in the next 10 years, how we could very easily transition from the system we have right now to that system. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not against okay. ideology. Like, I'm not against the ideology. I'm just saying that, like, pick things that are more incremental that'll get us there. And maybe we'll piss off less people and also actually get what we want. Well, I think, well, part of my point, I didn't really, what's the word, advocate for Medicare for all. I was more advocating for the concept of healthcare for all. And I think part of going an incremental change is adding that thinking of we need to somehow give every American access to healthcare without breaking the bank. 
but that mindset isn't there yet. That without breaking the bank is pretty important, but you should know that every American is technically required to have um, is technically required to have healthcare. Like you, you do get penalized by I think it is the IRS if you don't have healthcare applied to you. No, they're like that's a bomb. I forgot the number. Like twenty three million people without health insurance. Although I think Obamacare had to remove because Obamacare originally had a policy where you would get penalized for not having health care insurance. But I think they might have had to adjust that or even remove that, and you would need to double check. I, uh, I think it's penalized. Well, I, I, I had I had read that the Supreme Court had declared that it was constitutional to charge them. It was considered a it's a what is it? A, it was a penalty because the okay okay well, everybody else who pays taxes has to pay for that person's health care. About the Affordable Care Act and the whole Supreme Court thing uh, afterwards. Um, I want to transition to uh, the next topic that we had now that we've all got a chance about it, given our initial reactions to healthcare in America. Uh, so we talked about the discrepancy in resources uh, available at different healthcare systems, and that oftentimes boils down to racial uh, disparities, uh, racial inequities in different regions, gender inequities. And so um, Sahi, I was wondering if you can start off a conversation about uh, the prevalence of racial and gender uh, inequities in healthcare and kind of if you have a theory or like have some research about why it's so prevalent or why it's such an issue. Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, man. Okay. So (laughs) this one is a heavy one and it is very prevalent, Pruthi. It's sad to say, but that is the truth. Um, And I think I'll just start off actually with a story. Um, kind of just exemplifying a recent kind of all of these notions tying in. So um, I'm not sure if you guys have heard of Kira Johnson. She was a black woman that recently lost her life in maternal care. So um, what happened was in a hospital here in California, in LA, actually, I think it was Cedar Sinai Hospital. Um, she was admitted perfectly healthy woman, every no pre-existing conditions, um, very fit. And she already had a son. So her son, her husband and her went in to um, have her baby. And she had the baby successfully, but what uh, ensued after was that she was having abdominal pain. And for 10 hours, she was saying she was in pain. Her husband was alerting the nurses, and none of the hospital staff were really um, paying attention to her pain. And finally, there was blood in her catheter, and it was that's when they were like, okay, we absolutely have to listen. So they rushed her to the OR. And she had, what was it, liters of blood pooled in her abdomen by then. And the blood was pooling because they nicked her bladder during cesarean. So the surgeons had nicked her bladder. And that's why she was bleeding out. And they ignored her for 10 hours. And she died on the table. And her baby does not have a mom now. And this is not an isolated event. The intersection of gender and race, particularly being black and female, is literally killing people. We look at maternal mortality rates here in the United States, and black women are three to four times more likely to suffer than white women in the country. And that is just an obscene discrepancy. And there's no explanation, even after controlling for socioeconomic status, for education, for any of those other factors that you could think are leading to these discrepancies, it still boils down to racism. And I think another ultimate example of this is um, Serena Williams. Serena Williams has a history of um, pulmonary embolisms, uh, something like that in her chart. And she alerted her physicians. And this is like one of the world's greatest tennis players we're talking about. But still, the first thing they saw was her black skin. So when she was telling the nurses, like, hey, I have this history. You should be giving me so-and-so. I think she was saying, like, I need a heparin drip or something. 
Um, and alerting them of that, they were kind of ignoring her until things got much worse. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, like what can protect you if the first thing people see is the color of your skin, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, racism is prevalent in healthcare. Yeah, um, really quick, uh, pulmonary embolism is a blood clot in the lungs for those who uh, might not be as acute with their, might, might be skilled in medical uh, terminology. But yeah, Thank it's you. a very serious condition. And yeah, I I can list off like five more examples of just similar incidents of uh, African-American women or just like other like minority individuals who are like literally like experimented on almost by um, their physicians. And it a major part of this has to do with uh, prior racial tendencies. Like there was, I, there used to be taught in medical school, like legit that African-Americans have a higher pain tolerance than like other uh, like Caucasians and other individuals. So you, they can get away with like less anesthesia. They can get away with uh, less resources. And so the fact that this thing is, is only like relatively recently being phased out of medical education, medical curriculum is a very important uh, uh, thing to know in regards to why such issues and disparities still exist. Um, there are doctors who have inherent biases, not just, you know, we always like have a tendency of antagonizing the healthcare system. And uh, there are reasons for, you know, arguably doing so, but definitely there are biases that physicians have, there's incumbent that they overcome if they want to become the leaders in the healthcare industry to bring the changes that we all want them to uh, kind of bring. Um, I had another point that I was going to bring about in terms of like, uh, disproportionate resources. Um, but if anyone else wants to jump in, go ahead and, and can cut me off. With the black women thing, um, there's like a lot of studies on how people just don't believe that their pain in the sense that like, like you look at the black body, there's a, a lot of people that don't believe when black women are pain because they're, they don't, think that that's the thing and I don't know if that makes sense that or that's coming across but it's not always like like strict racism of like oh let's not treat this black person it's literally that they like Pruthi saying that there's an education on pain tolerance and somehow like either black people don't feel as much pain or oh they're being they're making it up there's a lot of people who believe that when black people are like literally voicing what they're going through there's a sense of like eh I mean you're fine you'll be okay. Also, there's a lot of, when you're learning how to diagnose things, those are very specific things, right? Like you have to know exactly what this symptom is, what that could look like, what this leads to. And for a lot of people learning, you're only learning on a specific type of body. You only know what that looks like on a specific type of body. So if you never have to think, okay, what would this disorder or this symptom look like on a black person or a person of color? And you never have to entertain that idea and when it happens in real life, you're like, hmm, what's going on here? Yeah, no. Um, yeah, thank you for bringing that up, Alex. That's exactly um, the case, pretty much nailed it on the head. Uh, anybody else wanted to add anything before? I yeah, um, speaking of like being racist and straight up benefiting off of um, African-Americans, I feel that one of the big things that uh, we still don't acknowledge is the fact that pretty much every medical advancement that's happened um, over the last, I think, like 40 years has used um, HeLa cells. 
for um, the development of medicine as well as pretty much anything at, at, like in relation to medical sciences. And the Hilo salts were uh, like, I'm pretty sure you guys all like have read about it, but it's just to clarify, it's the um, cells that were uh, cultured from a um, African-American woman who had uh, cancer and um, she, her name was Henrietta Lacks. Um, the ph- physician, she, they took the cells, they didn't ask or anything, and they've been using it ever since in terms of um, just, they, they've literally been using it uh, and without her consent, without her knowledge. And then recently when it was found out, there's this huge um, case going on now behind with the family because Henrietta Lacks is now like she's passed away. Um, and the family's trying to get like kind of reparations for what happened. They've been, they've like, they haven't been paid. They haven't been given anything. It's like you've left this case and it, there's no closure for the people who have, kind of had to experience and deal with the pains of everything. And I've used HeLa cells. I'm like, a, I, I'm a biologist. I study, like, I'm a, I'm trying to go into research there. And it's just like, whenever I see it, it's just like, damn, this is so messed up that we're using these cells. And it's, it just feels really bad whenever you touch them, you know, like whenever you're working with them. And I feel that, that just epitomizes like what um like the racism within healthcare it's the fact that nobody acknowledges such a big thing and yet it still continues to happen and as you guys have said like nobody it's just it's not acknowledged right now the fact that we have systemic racism within um healthcare as a whole yeah thank you gupta um that was one of the stories that i was alluding to uh, earlier. Uh, I actually read this story for one of my classes at Berkeley. Uh, if anyone uh, want, if you guys have the time, I would highly recommend you guys read The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks by uh, Rebecca Plut, I want to say. Uh, very insightful book. It does explains the whole situation by the uh, point of view of like a biographer or like a journalist who was very close to the situation and got the, uh, the family's permission to talk to everyone about how they felt and get their side of the story. Um, highly recommend reading the book if you guys haven't yet. So, uh, Avnish, your hands up, what's up? Um, something I wanted to ask uh, to Gupta, Sahidi, Prithi is, so in this country, people like to claim that we go about uh, medicine in this way of like evidence-based medicine, right? Yeah. But what, what I'm struggling to wrap my head around, uh, especially with some of the stories that Sahidi told is like, how did evidence lead how did how did is is it possible that it was evidence that led like evidence that led doctors to not want to listen to patients especially if they're black or is that strictly their own bias i'm trying to i'm trying to understand i want to get in the head of somebody who does something like this uh you want to answer the question first and i can give my thoughts after you um sure pruthi i'm trying to gather my thoughts as well and I I want to say it definitely is bias of niche because like when we see discrepancies even while controlling for other factors other than race purely it simply doesn't make sense and I'm sure we've all like 
studied race as a social construct in um, various parts of our own careers, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. you know, there is the biology aspect of, um, you know, differing. Of course, there's variation in people of different regions, but um, where is really the knowledge of like pain tolerance in terms of that? And the second thing is ultimately the patient is the one living in their body, right? They know that is their home and they know it best. And it is doing harm, in my opinion, by not at least trying to see why they're complaining of pain, right? Like, especially a mother, like, um, postpartum, like, that's a very vulnerable state. You should, at the very least, you know, comfort her and try to resolve what the problem is. But here we see that lack of empathy. So it's hard for me to say it's a evidence-based practice. But um, Prithi, let's hear what you think. Uh, um, actually, uh, Thomas, your hand is raised. Did you want to add on to this particular topic? It was a different topic. Um, it was this topic, but I'm also not a medical expert at all. But I think that, so as Prithi was saying, that this is a, a dialogue that they're trying to take out of the healthcare system right now, right? This whole idea of like, oh, black people can tolerate more pain and stuff that you're trying to take out. And the thing is that in society, there are, there are a lot of things that are wrong that we try to take out. But the reason that they're there in the first place can have origins very, very, very long time ago. And I think that uh, this is, again, no research done whatsoever, but our society is literally built off the backs of slaves, right? That's our entire civilization we're living in to this day. And everybody keeps talking about how it's very distant in the past, but it's not. And so if we're living in the society that did that to a huge population of people, that society is not going to sit there and be like, these are people, these are people with like emotions and dreams and like families and pain and whatever, whatever, whatever. So there's going to always be this dialogue of, oh, black people are different from us, right? And that will go into like, they can tolerate more pain. Their pains aren't the same as ours. Their bodies aren't the same as ours. So that's the society we live in. And if healthcare is part of the society, they interact with each other. So there'll be a lot of conversations of like, even if there's no, uh, I forgot the word you used. I think it was results-based. I'm sorry. Evidence -based. Yeah, evidence-based. Like, it's it's more just like that dialogue, that conversation of like, oh, well, they've experienced this much stuff. They, they've, like, white bodies couldn't experience that pain. It has to be a different. Like, I, there was, there's a Bible story where Adam gave up one of his ribs and put it in the ground and from that ground grew eve and that was the first woman and it was literally believed in because of the bible for decades and hundreds of years that women had one less rib than men and that was just off a of bible story nobody like opened up a body and checked they were just like yeah women have one less rib because the bible said so so you know Interesting. But wouldn't it be men have one rep? I, I agree, Gupta, but that would mean that men are less, <laughs> and we can't have that. So instead, they did, yeah, so, um, yeah, women have one less rib. That's so dumb. I agree. Yeah. That's totally I think, logical. Yeah. I, think, I think Alex is kind of right. You know, medical research and medical, I mean, science is built off research of the past, and if you have, if you have a society where, you know, majority of people think uh, people of color are less and them you know that's that's what they thought and that's how they justified slavery in a lot of ways uh you're gonna have scientific and medical research that's built that's based upon that fact and that carries on and what we have today 
all of that research back there is, even if it's not, you know, followed today, it's still a sort of foundation that the remnants are there. Yeah, the remnants are there. Yeah. So I see what you're saying, but like, and like, I I completely agree, but like now, like, I kind of want to, I kind of want to see like where that trickled into this, into the decision-making process. I mean, Dan, sorry, were you you done? Yeah. So so that's, that's why I like pointed the question at Ruthie and Gupta. What do you mean the decision-making process? Like there's a literal, there's what, like three, three, like if you, if you go into a hospital and you get like any sort of procedure, right. There's three, three physicians, like three doctors Mm -hmm. who will make decisions. Right. And there's like some order to which the hierarchy of like how these decisions are made. Right. It has to go through three people is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. What I want to know is at what point does it all, does it all trickle in and like things start going from evidence-based more towards bias. So um, to answer your question, I think everyone has done a really great job, you know, whether or not you're a medical professional or, or aspiring medical professional or not, you guys have all done a really good job, I think, to kind of hit, sum up what we're talking about. Uh, to give a specific example of the inherent biases that are still left over in our system and the fact that it has to do with both the physicians, but also evidence-based learning that kind of influenced their biases. So um, I, I don't think it goes without saying that People back, like you know, in like the '90s, '80s, like before our time, challenged what uh, they learn in class a little bit less than we might do now, or like each generation does challenges a little bit less than the prior uh, the generation that comes after them. So there was literally research papers, like individual specific research papers done by like very famous or um um uh, article uh, research papers that said we have done the results we have done the measurements and african americans have smaller skulls because they have smaller brains because they have smaller skulls we did the measurements we did all this very uh, intense uh quantitative data analysis and so they taught those research papers in medical schools and like i said they don't challenge the information as much as people like in this generation or maybe the generation after us will do and so they're like oh wow i didn't know this but it's in a very famous medical journal so it must be true being taught things like this over many years they don't go back and look into that these uh the the way that they did the research the quantitative analysis was highly flawed so many different things small sample sizes um they very much chose wait i think i know the study you're talking about was this the one where they took a haitian creole person and they literally measured the size of their skull it was just one person that they measured it was like it was like less than ten people they measured. And they measured like a hundred like people like Caucasian descent or something like that. And I I remember like I took a class in college and they talked about how um, this basic bias uh, got created that like African American people or African people in general have um, like are dumber. Yeah. That they took a person from Haiti and he had um, he he had like Down syndrome. And there was like smooth um, parts of his brain as well, so it was literally like an extremely flawed study, and this was back in like the early 1900s. So, and they took that, and then they just built upon that, and I feel that that might have been what led that. And this was like done by a, a very famous physician as well, so I feel like this might have been also what led to such like to put it in like lack of words um like just a stupid bias 
exactly at the end of the day so wait to to digest like what the two of you said people want to rely on evidence-based medicine but evidence-based medicine itself is fraught with there's a reason we learn stats in high school nowadays it's yeah. because of the fact that we had such dumb like research studies being done early in the 1900s size of 10 is absurd right well, like, like, yeah, like what do you do dude this some doctors use a sample size of one look at the world we're living in you have to build a construct to intake take in the world we're in and use that construct to serve whatever purpose you want in the sense that if you believe a certain thing, you can find the research, you can find the facts, you can find the bias to support that. So if there's a society that believes like, like Srinath was saying this thing about black people, then you're going to take in a study that says, Oh, well, their skulls are smaller. Oh, well, they can tolerate more pain. So that's, it, it, it serves each other. Also a quick fact check on the Bible story. It is actually that people believe that women had one more rib. Sorry continue ah all right thank you for uh, doing that thomas uh sahi you want to add something i see your hands raised sahidi if you're talking you're muted yeah i'm sorry i totally was talking (laughs) (laughs) um okay i'll start over um (laughs) i was just gonna say um you know, like, I think kind of like a theme from what you guys have been saying seems to essentially be saying that like science and medicine is a social construct, which is why things have their own socio political agendas. And just kind of going off of that, like, it kind of just reminded me of the whole like, anti vaxxers movement that was mm-hmm. technically spurred by a completely bogus um, research article, um, linking uh, vaccinations with um, rise in autism, right. And yeah. although that physician has been punished, and t- their license, I think was revoked, it was a completely bogus study, look at the kind of social impact that's still continuing from that people are still anti vaccinations. Um, And that kind of just reminded me of how, like, you guys were all mentioning how this study on, like, skull sizes and all this stuff was still being used or that kind of, like, ideology is still permeated by people who can utilize that to serve their own agendas. So, I mean, it's kind of scary, but it's true. Yeah, it doesn't even have to be healthcare, honestly. Like, a similar thing can be extended to, like, global warming. 99% of scientists say, oh, global warming is real. We need to prepare for it. But people will hold on to that 1% of people who say, oh, no, global warming is not real. Uh, and it will just kind of build on to the, uh, the, the more dispute and conversation that honestly we should have moved past by uh, now. And while it's important to have conversations, it's also important to at some point kind of acknowledge the facts until our society can generally move on. Um, and we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? Like, yeah. And that's still a disputed thing that <laughs> in a pandemic like for for the healthcare system like the healthcare system should literally be like guys this is what we need to do we will treat a portion of you when you get sick let's let's deal with it and everyone's like hmm i don't know man QAnon has been telling me some very different stories and that's the that's the crux yeah alex i completely agree with you um Gupta or Trina, did you guys have anything else that you guys wanted to uh, add on or um, anything else you guys wanted to say before we kind of move on to the last topic? Yeah, um, when it comes to the fact of, like, Americans believing in stuff, I feel like 
Dr. Fauci, he summed it up pretty well. He said that, like, yo, um, Americans, they're straight up rebels, right? Like, everyone in America is rebellious to a certain point. Nobody actually wants to listen to an authority at the end of the day, which is kind of what leads us to believe, like, these dumb opinions um, that straight up have no evidence behind them. So when it comes to Americans and our view on the world, it's that the authority figures are trying to promote a certain ideology amongst us, which is why we cannot listen to them, which is also, I feel, the reason why someone like Donald Trump got elected at the end of the day. It's strictly because of the fact that there were so many people telling, like, there were so many, like, higher ups telling the American people what to do and then... When someone like this guy came in, he's like, yo, don't listen to them. This is what happened. And that like, that's what draw drew a lot of their attention. So when it comes to medicine and Medicare, people are not going to listen to what the scientists have to say. It's, it's, it's just a lack of understanding. I feel that they have, or a lack of trust with um, scientists as well. Or lack of wanting that to be true can also be a thing they don't want to. That's also another. Yeah, and then I feel like that's also ties into the whole religion aspect is the fact that most people don't believe the fact that um, we can uh, we can literally be our own end and that the like the whole like it, it's just it's like a whole messed up situation right now. The yeah. fact, yeah. Got you. Uh, Thomas, and then I'm gonna, after that, I'm going to give it up to Sahidi um, to talk about uh, Affordable Care Act and um, it's kind of its prevalence like in recent talks about Supreme Court and stuff. Thomas first, though. So to actually transition into the talks about Affordable Care Act, I just wanted to maybe just kind of ask, I don't know, like uh, I used talked about an experience of going to the hospital um, having a medical condition and then not feeling like that was treated properly. And I, I feel like that that situation is very prevalent across like there are a lot of there's a lot of people who feel like when they go to the doctors the doctors don't know what they're doing then Gupta also talked about how or I don't know if it was Gupta or Avnish so I don't want to speak for someone else's but there's a sense of like if the government gets a little bit more control about healthcare, there'll be bureaucracy and everything will get slower and not as effective right so I think that it's very easy to build a dialogue of opposition to Affordable Care Act because there's a lot of sentiments already in the country that like healthcare isn't good right now and you want us to put more money to reach more people when it's not effective they don't know what they're doing and so just to transition into that conversation it's like there's a lot of dialogue against Affordable Care Act because a majority of this population doesn't believe in the healthcare system already and I'll leave it up to CEV. I think that sorry just one last thing I think that Another reason why people don't believe in the healthcare system is because of the fact that a lot of people also think that a majority of what they're paying for ends up going towards um, non-paying, non-taxpaying uh, residents in the United States. So that's what might drive them to think that the Affordable Care Act might not work at the, or it's just unfair to them that they have to pay taxes for people who, or they have to pay for the people who aren't in the uh, aren't paying taxes in the country, or like so illegal think, immigrants. What's that? You mean like for like illegal immigrants and stuff like that? 
yeah, I was like not trying to use that word, but yeah. Um, oh. uh, illegal immigrants for one. And then um, like just a lot, a lot of people who were here um, on, I think some kinds of visas don't make you pay uh, certain, I, I'm not sure about the specifics there, but there are like specifics where it comes to why um, a lot of Americans who are relatively educated in this subject also just don't feel like they should have to pay for um, healthcare, which is what Obamacare did was that they wanted everyone to pay a certain amount. If you're at a higher tax bracket, you pay um, a higher level um, for people who are uh, in comparison to people who are at a lower tax bracket, they don't have to pay as much. So it's kind of like a, um, it's kind of like a trade-off I would say where at the end of the day, everyone gets healthcare, but it's at, it's at um, a cost for the richer. Okay. Um, Sahi, I'm going to let you kind of start the conversation. Our last topic for today, we have like maybe like 10, 15 minutes left, guys, just for uh, time check. So, um, yeah, start the conversation about Affordable Care Act, Obamacare. Um, same thing, by the way, for those of you who don't know about the terminology again. Um, yeah, you can start the conversation. We'll steer it uh, whatever direction you want to do so. Yeah, definitely, Pruthi. I feel like I have a lot of thoughts buzzing in my head because there's just so much to like unpack here. But I think one question for me personally has been, who does it serve, right? Like when we're talking about debating um, Affordable Care Act and everything, like who is it actually benefiting and serving? And I don't know, I just did a little bit of research, um, not too much in depth, but from what I saw, the people that are benefiting the most from this are white, um, lawfully here, taxpaying citizens. So if those are the demographics being most helped by this, then why are so many American citizens against this? And um, I just did a quick search as well, and it says undocumented immigrants are not eligible to enroll in Medicare, Medicaid, or um, ACA marketplaces. So then if that's the case, then who is kind of starting this dialogue, um, you know, in the right wing about us paying for people that we shouldn't be paying for in their in their terms right like if we're talking about not wanting to pay for um, undocumented persons here then it doesn't even seem like that we are doing that so is that just yet another political fluke to um, swing voters so I don't know like when it comes to the whole bipartisan issue on healthcare, like do Republicans actually have an intention of striking down ACA and coming up with a new plan because there's been four years to come up with a new plan. There has been absolutely no plan in any debate. um, Trump or um, Mike Pence have not actually given any concrete agenda as to how they plan to replace because they've been saying repeal, replace, repeal, replace, but they haven't done either of those things, you know? (laughs) Um, So it's just like, I am starting to think this is really all just political jargon to swing voters, no one is actually thinking about the people and who it serves. And um, yeah, I guess, okay, I'll stop there. I've been ranting a lot, but. Well, I was, I was actually going to say they did try with the American Health Care Act in 2017, oh. which it, it failed. <laughs> because, I mean, what it, what it ended up, what it was going to do after like people actually looking into it was making it worse for like the everyday American and having huge tax breaks for the 1% and the 0.1%. Uh, what was expected of <laughs> Wait, what? That wasn't, that wasn't even the president. That was just uh, a Republican Senate. Wait, what? 
Alex, are you surprised? What? I know. Like, I think it was like for the top one percent tax breaks. No, no, but then that ties into what Sahidi was saying was that this is all political jargon. They have is, no yes. idea what the hell they're doing. They don't. And, and and in Trump's words, you know, he didn't know that healthcare was hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I mean, the only healthcare he's had is trying to get hard. So you know, it's fine. Okay. Damn. Man. Fuck. Damn comment. Um. One thing that I want to talk about, yeah, healthcare is hard, and um, it's also going to be exceptionally harder for uh, Biden to kind of walk uh, look into it because, um, at least to my uh, quick re- uh, research into it, uh, I wouldn't find anything. But telemedicine is very prominent now, and it's it looking like it might continue to be prominent for many, you know, months and even years to come because. Um, there's good sides and bad sides of telemedicine, having done worked in a tele- telemedical clinic and also done research on telemedicine as a whole. The good sides of it is that it has potential to provide care for those you don't necessarily get easily, particularly family those in like uh, rural areas, those in, um, I mean, not don't get care, but don't get it as readily. So rural areas, senior citizens, and in like ethnic boroughs or like um, boroughs in which there's a lot of minorities present that might not get it necessarily. But that's also going to require a lot of money. And if not done carefully, telemedicine can actually lead to deterioration of patient care, patient health. Um, one major proponent is, I think it was a study done in D.C. So as of now, telemedical doctors get less paid and many counties get paid less for telemedical visits than they do for t- uh, normal visits. So uh, when at the height of the pandemic where, you know, most part normal visits weren't allowed doctors were like i'm not getting paid as much for just visits. So they're obviously decreasing the level of care that they were providing and wait do doctors get paid per visit yes i didn't know that uh, it, it depends on like what hospital you're in uh what, what, specialty, what specialty you are too right i thought yeah. that when it comes to um surgeons they get paid regardless yeah, so there are some uh, schemes, but for the most part, when I'm talking about like family medicine, private, uh, personal care, um, the vast majority of doctors get paid by patient because it's mm-hmm. personalized medicine at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, there's uh, patients in communities that were having very low care, and especially this kind of is a trickle down effect to the primary care physicians. Uh, not only would primary care physicians have to worry about their patients, but also due to COVID, they couldn't. Um, come home as time readily they didn't have child care support for their children because you know like after schools were closed uh their schools were closed they couldn't uh, get their children uh warm meals and all that stuff and so this all led to deterioration of care and it was kind of predicated on the fact that physicians were burnt out uh in like ethnic uh communities or places where they didn't have as much funding for telemedical visits and so as soon as this community i think it was dc made um, telemedical visits and medical visits uh, equivalent. Not only did the number of patient visits go up like 400, like 800%, I am blanking on the right number, but a drastic amount, but also the quality of care, the level of care drastically improved. So that's something that um, Affordable Care Act, Moving Future, or whatever Biden Care has going to be, inheriting this economy, inheriting this new America, essentially, is going to have to find out how to take care of telemedical care, how to set up uh, telemedical care and how Obamacare or whatever new healthcare system is passed 
provides proper care so that people can stay socially distant, but also healthy. That's kind of the one thing that I wanted to talk about and it's a challenge moving forward. Like Obamacare is great and all, but we are facing new issues uh, in our society that, uh, at least to my knowledge, Obamacare is not, does not have a plan to address itself. Well, he hasn't come up with a comprehensive plan yet, which is why. Yeah, I, I understand. I'm just saying like, it's something he's definitely going to have to take account and it's also a very new issue. So like, how do you find a lot of good data for that? Um, sorry, I went on a really long rant. Uh, anybody else want <laughs> anything to say about your telemedicine or about Obamacare and Affordable Care Act in general? Um, well, I think other than you, yeah, sorry, I was going to say Sahidi has more experience with that. Go ahead, Sahi. Dude, I actually just wanted to ask you, like, how do you as a prospective physician feel about an increase in telemedicine, like apart from reaching out to, you know, patients or in the current pandemic situation, because me personally, that actually makes me kind of sad. Like I'm very like, want to be in person, you know, um, want to see my patients face to face kind of thing. But how do you feel about that just from a personal level? Yeah, uh, that's a really good question, Sahi. Um, I think, well, one good thing is that I'm, looks like by the time we'll be out of done with medical school, we'll hopefully be back to kind of normal visits, whatever normal means that in then, like right. 2025. Hopefully. But like even right now, um, like we're, you know, we work, both of us work as behavioral therapists and a lot of patients, uh, parents aren't comfortable with us because what we do is go to the, uh, the kiddos' houses and provide care. And so not a lot of parents are, not all parents are comfortable with that. And so they have to provide care uh, over telemedicine. And I agree. Not only does it not feel as personal enough, it doesn't feel effective enough. Like I, this is like, I, I guess I work for like a telemedical clinic or like a scribing company. I've done research on telemedical care. It has its benefits in terms of it's better than no care, but for the mass majority of people, uh, or maybe not majority, for a lot of people who already had some level of proper care beforehand, going from that to telemedical care is not effective. Like for example, like the kiddos that I work with, who have, um, uh, we work with who have autism, they're already spending so many hours of their day doing Zoom classes that it's already like a lot of sensory stimulus for their brain to kind of handle. And then they have to do homework online. And then the fact that they have to go through like behavioral therapy and sessions online is just, it's so much for, for kids itself. Well, it's so much for anyone, I would say. So I'm not looking forward or i wouldn't want to do it like i would prefer to do in person because that's why i got into medicine of niche and then if nobody else anything we'll probably wrap up after him okay um so i kind of want to speak to that um pretty uh would you say that your opinion is more specific to the specific like to the type of work that you do with uh kids with behavioral disabilities or would you say that it broadly applies to all medicine because I'm under a different impression for like the 90% of uh, most doctor visits. I think it's definitely most impacted like decisions in which like, uh, I think my, the field that I'm in is more impacted than other aspects of care, but I definitely don't, I, I'm skeptical that there is a field, field of medicine that hasn't, uh, if not slightly uh, deteriorated due to telemedicine as opposed to in-person care. I'm not sure. You can talk uh, more about that yourself. Okay, well, I've had good experiences with telemedicine, so like, I can't speak poorly to it. I think Ayush mentioned that he had 
a poor experience with telemedicine or maybe that was in-person medicine no no so actually, actually before that appointment where i went in it was for telemedicine, right? telemedicine appointment and then that's what she said like oh, i really can't tell then come in person and then when i went in person she was like ah oh, shit i still don't know <laughs> again not reassuring but also probably good because she shouldn't be giving you medical opinions on things that she's not knowledgeable oh, 100, yeah 100 percent. okay well so i wanna i wanna paint like a picture for like what a very ideal solution is. Okay. So in healthcare, I just genuinely believe that if I go in for a doctor's visit, I want treatment that is somewhat personalized, but more importantly, I want treatment that is fast. So, okay. Imagine this. I'm it, it's now 10 years from now, right? Uh, I fall sick inside a hotel, but, um, and like I'm traveling, let's just say I'm traveling. Okay. Uh, I fall sick in a hotel and I'm traveling or maybe, maybe the hospital is just like, you know, 30 miles away. So like I have to go entirely out of my way in order to go to the hospital. Okay. Or to my doctor. Um, my symptoms seems like something that can be treated by an ENT. Yeah. Okay. Um, by, by this time we've got some pretty wicked cameras on our phones. Uh, maybe there's some biometric sensors on our phones slash watches that, that can also be, pulled into play here um the doctor is able to do a full checkup on me okay yeah the doctor says oh and i believe this to be the problem right um i'm looking at i'm looking at your gps data and it looks like there's a cvs or a walgreens across the street um i'm gonna put the order in right now for the medicine that i think that you need and uh you can go get it in the next five minutes or like even crazier than that's like you know it's 10 years from now so maybe a drone delivers it to you shit i don't know um like to me like okay well one one thing that we definitely know is that in-person visits cost more all right in-person visits definitely cost more just in terms of like because there's only a finite amount of space that you have to hold your visits um there's all these different admins that you need in the process right you need people to clean the spaces you need people to schedule the time that it's going to take you need like physical equipment there for for the visits right it seems like going in the telemedicine direction has gotten more impersonal, but if we were to standardize the quality of healthcare across the country and overall raise it for every single individual American, telehealth is absolutely the way to go. Yeah. Um, are you done? Sorry. Finish with that, please. Oh yeah. And, and I think like this spitting image of me, you know, seeing an ears, note and throat doctor, uh, on my phone <laughs> and then getting my medicine delivered to me via a drone is like a picture perfect example of like what we could move towards and also it's very incrementally existing on top of what we have right now so it's very possible yeah so uh two things first um if uh, whoever your physician is i think the first thing question they ask is uh, are you in a hotel a motel or a holiday inn I think that's very important to get to. Oh my god. Dude, that was bad. Dude, dude, dude. It was great. It was terrible. So basically, I think the healthcare situation is rather than paying for Viagra, just watch Hotel Motel in the world. I can't believe that we try to have serious discussions on this podcast sometimes. We're at the tail end. Bobby, do you know, do you know this reference? Okay, no, we'll tell this. We'll tell this. No. No. <laughs> We're okay, so. talking about the song, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. You know what? Pretty, 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 pretty. Okay, 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 okay. okay. You, you, Gupta. <laughs> so, um, on a more
I 100% agree that telemedicine, the implications that can have are amazing. Like, I guess I worked in these situations and I've definitely seen telemedicine be successful. But at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that telemedicine, one, cannot be set up everywhere. Like in the Bay Area, telemedicine is very prominent. But like if we were living in like a rural area in like middle of nowhere, Texas, it might not have been as effective. I don't think there'd be as many drones coming to your hotel to provide you care. So that's one thing. It's the reason why. But the phone is probably the important part here, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, like global and like I guess not global, but widespread broadband internet connections already a problem now. So you have to fix that before you even try okay, to tap now, Can I safely assume that like internet internet access across at least Americans will be greater than it is now? I yeah. wish I could say yes, but... But even if it is, it's going to take time for the healthcare industry to catch up to the technology industry in that aspect. You know, like how long have 3D printers been of, uh, relevant or like present? And only recently have we been started using 3D printers in like medicine and healthcare settings. So... It, it there's a little catch up period, so ten years is way too short a period. Second of all, the thing you mentioned about wanting healthcare to be fast, health, like, that might work for you. But like I said, this is personalized medicine. If you just came off like a major surgery, if you just came off like a you know a gunshot wound and you're recovering, the last thing you want your person to be is just someone guy over the camera who's trying to be fast, trying to get you in and out. Oh, oh, ab- absolutely. I was speaking to like the more broad cases, which is why I mentioned in years notes nose and throat doctor not not a child that's why i said the first thing like it is possible like the um, the application telemedicine can be very uh, impactful and helpful but it's not gonna the vast majority of people are not gonna are probably gonna refer the uh, original sort of care is what my i am thinking or can afford um not only have a preferable preference but uh afford uh normal or in-person care uh sahi and then um maybe that can be also kind of your closing remarks sahi if you have anything else to say um okay i'll i'll make it quick i know we need to wrap up um but yeah i just wanted to share a final thought on just like kind of like this idea of almost fast medicine right like um doing a quick virtual um meet sort of a thing and just how that could be problematic because kind of circling back to that first reference I started with slow medicine by Dr. Sweet. Um, she literally coins that term because she's trying to go to the opposite of fast medicine where she feels that we are um, in the ruthless pursuit of efficiency. We are spending more money than we are time. And she says that the more efficient thing is to spend time over money with the patients that we're seeing. So I kind of also am on the page of um, definitely prefer in person. Um, I do think that like Avnish said, there's a time and place for virtual meets as well, um, especially for things that can be like verbally diagnosed. But then like also another question I had that we probably don't have time to talk about it now, but like how would we build that, right? Because it just feels like, um, you know, paying like $100 for that visit. Like I literally had a physical therapy visit at PAMP and it was like 120 for like um like what was it like 45 minutes over zoom it just felt like i don't know it just didn't feel like it was um bang for my buck but yeah i think i'm definitely a go in person unless necessary online type of person yeah 100 agree um with that i think we're gonna wrap up our um podcast today thank you so much for uh coming on our show we all got to learn a lot from you sahi um yeah thank you 
<laughs> yeah, everyone say thank you, guys. What, what, what is what's happening? I <laughs> unmute you guys. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> Thanks for having me, guys. This is a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, and we're definitely gonna have you on if that's okay with you for a future up, uh, episode. Um, that may be a little bit more crazy because, guys, all the listeners out there, there's the crazy side of Sahi that you guys have not gotten to see. <laughs> professional topic but we're gonna unleash that whenever Sai comes on next time oh shit man (laughs) (laughs) okay um thank you to all our listeners um next week actually um spoiler alert we're gonna be talking about our favorite indian foods and snacks that's gonna be a very hotly uh debated and i'm probably gonna be crying get it podcast um is gonna be wrong just heads up New episode every Sunday. Follow us uh, on Instagram at Just Like Me Podcast. Thank you guys for listening. Good night.